It's the Basketball Hall of Fame's Legends Podcast. I'm Kyle Belanger. Joining me today is a 1987 Naismith Memorial Basketball Hall of Fame enshrinee. He's the only person to lead the NCAA, NBA, and ABA in scoring. He's an NBA champion with the 1975 Golden State Warriors, an eight-time NBA All-Star, a four-time ABA All-Star, and he was named one of the NBA's 50 greatest players of all time. I am, of course, talking about Rick Barry. Rick, thanks so much for joining me today. My pleasure. You know, and I'd like to tell everybody, Kyle, you know, it's uh, scoring all those points and leading those leagues and scoring. If you take enough shots, you can score enough points. <laughs> now, your competitive drive is legendary, which is, which is why I want to ask about your first most amazing basketball feat, which is choosing the University of Miami for your college ball. It was a program that you would basically resurrect. How did Miami land the kid from New Jersey who could shoot the lights out? Well, you know, the thing is, I, I don't consider myself, I wasn't a great shooter. I was a scorer, and, and there's a big difference between the two. Uh, there are numerous ways to score, uh, and when you break it all down, it's pretty simple to figure out how to do it. I told people, I said, look, if you run the floor and you play in a team that plays up-tempo, you're going to get four to six points on fast-break opportunities. Then if you really work hard and you get one offensive rebound a game put back, that's another two. So now you're up to six or eight points. You drive and attack the basket and get fouled and are able to make your free throws, which obviously I was very capable of doing. Uh, and I'm going to get to the line, you know, six times or more, but you know, let's say I'm getting another six points at the line. So I'm up to 12 to 14 points. Uh, I only have to make three shots, and we didn't have the three-point shot then. If I, if I take eight shots and only make three, I got 20 points. So how hard is it to score 20 points? Seriously. <laughs> I love that. I love that. The math checks out, too. I'm, I'm taking notes here. The math checks out. That's fantastic. Of course... Yeah, I mean, so seriously, I mean, it, it's it's not a big deal if you work at the game and, and, and put the effort forth necessary and have no weaknesses in your game. You can't have... You can't be a player who can only shoot it's in order to be really great at what you do. You have to have the ability to drive left, drive right, and shoot the ball. Now the defender has to guard you honestly. And if he guards you honestly and you know what you're doing offensively, he's in trouble because no defender, I don't care how good they are, I always laugh when I hear a lockdown defender from these broadcasters. Trust me, there is no such thing as a lockdown defender, okay? There hasn't been anybody I ever played in my life that locked me down. He just got lucky that I had a bad day shooting, and if he was really good, I had to work a lot harder, and I might have had to take more shots to get the points. And if he was able to accomplish that goal, then he was successful that night. If a good defender can make a great offensive player take more shots to score the points that he gets, that's a good job. It's not the number of points that he gets. It's how many shots that he has to take to get them. Love that. Of course, in, in 1965, um, after Miami, the San Francisco Warriors take you number two in the NBA draft. What are, your, what are your prevailing memories from that night as a young man about to make the largest transition of your life? Well, first of all, let me just say why I went to Miami. First of all, if you live in the Northeast, you know why you want to get out of there. <laughs> uh, because there's too many people, and, and, and you want to get away. You don't want to have winters where it's cold, and you've got to put on an overcoat and you know earmuffs and gloves and stuff of that nature. And so Miami was a pretty good place to go to do that. And also, it was a place where they played the kind of basketball that I wanted to be able to play. It wasn't a big powerhouse kind of a machine that some of these other big schools were where they bring in all these big, you know, top All-America players. And and they had a great coach in Bruce Hale. And so they played a 
Darryl Dane. He was a former pro coach. It was probably the best move I ever made because I got to have a coach who helped prepare me for the NBA. It was like going to the minor leagues for four years. Back then, you couldn't play as a freshman on the varsity, but I played on a, on a freshman team, and we played an up-style type of game. Man-to-man defense, push the ball. Kyle, in my senior year in college with no three-point shot, we averaged 98, almost 99 points a game. Good heavens. So we, so when I went to the pros, it was like, it, it actually was easier for me to go to the pros, to be honest with you. Yeah. Uh, mainly because of the fact that in college, in my last year, every defense was geared to try to stop me. Box in one, triangle, triangle in two. All of the defense was set to, to shut me down. Well, the style that we played made it difficult for teams to be able to do that. And because of the things that I learned how to do as a player, it made it difficult as well. So when I went to the pros, I had one guy guarding me. I'm going, oh, my God, this is what, what, this is easy. I only got one guy guarding me. So it was kind of funny, I, you know, saying what was it like to go and make that move. I was just excited to get a chance to go and have a chance to become a professional player. You know, the difference being, as you said, I was picked second. And there's, there's a debate as to whether I would have been picked second and whether I was second or third. I don't know what name they said first totally because Fred Hetzel went with me. It was the only time in the history of the NBA that they let the two worst teams in each division, conference, in each conference, do a coin flip. And it was the Knicks. And the Knicks won the toss. And so the Knicks got to pick first. And they, of course, chose Bill Bradley which kind of ticked me off because I wanted to be a Nick. I was from New Jersey, and so I never forgave them for that. And I always I had a lot of big games against the Knicks because I wanted to show them how wrong they were by not drafting me. And so he goes first, and then the Warriors had two picks. And then the, the, the Knicks took Dave Stallworth from Wichita State as the fourth pick. But whether or not they said my name or Fred Hetzel's name, I don't know, but it really was irrelevant because you know, they had the second and the third pick. Difference being is, is that I was offered 12000 $500 and I had to make the team for a one year contract. That's the difference. They forget those, they forgot those three zeros on my contract back in those <laughs> days. There wasn't any guarantee. Uh, and I didn't have an agent and I thought I did a pretty good job because I negotiated it up to 15,000 and I actually got a $3,000 signing bonus. So I was like a pig in swap. I couldn't believe that somebody's going to actually pay me $18,000 to go and do what I love to do, which is to play the game of basketball and to go to a city like San Francisco in a great place. Uh, yeah, it was, it was an amazing experience and I was just very excited about it and thought that I was the luckiest guy on the planet earth. Because of how, how savvy you were with, you know, with the business stuff and with, with being able to at least engineer a bit of your own fate. Um, do you think you were too young to appreciate the success that you were having? It seems like you were very present in the moment uh, for being such a young a young person at the time. Well, first of all, I expected myself to be good. I, you know, I mean, I, I had great confidence in myself. When I did speeches and talked to, to young people and talked to businesses and all, I have all of these things I talked about, all these great wonderful characteristics that you can have and qualities you can have that can help make you better. Uh, you know, it all kind of boils down to, to the main one, and that is you have to believe in yourself and have confidence in your ability to be able to go out and do what it is that you're expected to do, regardless of what your profession happens to be. And I had supreme confidence to the point where people have called me arrogant, which is ridiculous, because I think an arrogant person is someone who lacks confidence because it's a camouflage mechanism, and they just act this braggadocio way, and they have this air about them at all, because down deep inside, they're kind of afraid to fail. 
Sure. Uh, and I, I never was afraid to fail. That's one thing my father instilled in me is that in order to be great, you have to be willing to take chances. You have to be willing to make mistakes and learn from those mistakes to get better. Somebody once said, and it wasn't attributed to anybody, that the fastest way to learn to do something right is to do it wrong. Mm-hmm. Now, in 1967, this is a, such a, a wonderful moment because you become the first player to jump from the NBA to the ABA when you signed with the Oakland Oaks. Now, it gave you a chance to play for your father-in-law, Bruce Hale. Well, you were forced to sit out that first year after your move. Can, can you recall when you finally got back on the court the differences between the leagues and how they felt? Yeah, well, he was also, Bruce Hale was also my, uh, that was my college coach, a yeah. man who was very responsible for helping me become the player that I became. And um, So, I, yeah, I, I was basically Kurt Flood before Kurt Flood, because yeah. the NBA actually had the same clause in it, which is the reserve clause that the baseball contract had. And that was a huge thing for the Warriors. I think the NBA was very upset with them, actually, because they said that it was a reserve clause and they had the right to me for enough for the next year. And so I chose to sit out, sit, sit out for that year. And so that's then there's court cases and they go on and we could talk forever about what they transpired there. But I, I didn't do it necessarily to be the big uh, pioneer and the you know trail another blaze another trail. I did it because I I really didn't have a lot of fun the year before, but we came within two pick and roll plays of beating the great 67-76er team with Will Chamberlain and Luke Jackson and Larry Costello and Billy Cunningham and Wally Jones and Mac Dukas and just had a lot of great players on that team and a lot of people picked them as one of the greatest teams ever in the history of the NBA and we, we really had a chance to beat them but we didn't do it. The sad part for me was I think I averaged 40 points a game in that championship series uh, but I was playing on a badly sprained ankle that I had to get shot up before the game and at halftime, which today they probably wouldn't allow you to do that. And I was just very, very fortunate that I didn't do anything that ruined my entire career uh, by getting myself shot up in order to be able to play. So, uh, yeah, those that's the memories I have of that. And, I, again, changing the, the landscape uh, of the game was, you know, it was interesting. I, I didn't really gain anything from it. I just got crucified and vilified for it because I was a pioneer doing something and people were all upset with me for leaving the NBA. And it probably changed my stature in the game of the NBA. Had I stayed and played my entire career in the NBA, I think I would be revered a lot more than what I am as opposed to being this horrible, visible person that went and had no sense of value and no sense of loyalty, which is absolutely not true at all because I gave the Warriors every chance in the world to be able to keep me, and they blew it. And uh, and so I think I did everything, uh, um, you know, on the upper hand. Didn't do anything that I shouldn't have done, anything that, that I deserved to be crucified the way I was by the media. And so that was a, that was a difficult thing for me. As far as the talent goes, the ABA didn't have the talent that the NBA had initially, but eventually they had a lot of great players and they had some very good teams. And it really opened up the floodgates for so many more players to get an opportunity to become a professional athlete and for the game itself to grow. And then, of course, uh, the merger took place and the NBA is, has been growing ever since. Now, I only have three more questions left for Rick Barry here, and I sincerely appreciate this time. One of them comes directly as a follow-up to that, which is with so many so many franchises that coveted you, and you talk about all the different places that you played, is there one place or market that you would have loved to have stayed longer if, you know, all things being equal, if you were able to have stayed, the one place that Rick Barry wished lasted longer? Well, I, I, I'd love playing for the Warriors. I mean, if I could do it over again and have all the things that transpired, have the white
for a reason. People have to understand that. And if it's a sad thing, cry and get over it, move on and, and deal with it. And I, I don't live in the past, but if I could be where I am today with, with the friends and the family that I have, it probably would be that I, I would have stayed with the Warriors. I loved it out there. I loved the Bay Area. And I love the team, and I'm so happy for the team and the success, the success that they're enjoying right now. I think it's awesome. They have such loyal fans. But, yeah, there's no question that's where I would have preferred to have stayed if I could have played my entire career staying in the Bay Area. That's that, that's something I would definitely would have loved to have done. Now, you were also one of the first players to successfully transition to the broadcast booth. Obviously, you got your start um, in the year off the court with the Oaks, but I'm wondering who the first person was to suggest that you give it a try professionally. Uh, and, and was that the moment for the Oaks, or was it later on? No, actually, it was me that I always wanted to do that, because when I grew up in New Jersey, I saw Frank Gifford and, and Pat Summerall, who I was a big fan of the New York football giants, and I saw them go from the you know, from being great players especially Frank Gifford, and going into the broadcasting business says, wow, wouldn't that be cool if I get to be a professional athlete and then I can go into broadcasting? That would be really cool. And so when I was at college in the University of Miami, I probably would have had a major in, in radio TV and, and broadcasting work, uh, radio TV and film, and, but I couldn't because I was in the business school and you're not allowed to have a, another major. So um, I took all my courses in, in all of those different fields and prepared myself properly. That's what you have to do in life. You have to prepare yourself properly for what it is you're going to do. You have to study. You have to learn. You have to get a foundation to build on. And that's the fundamental principles and concepts of whatever it is you're doing, whether it's broadcasting, whether it's music, whether it's business. You have to learn about that particular field of endeavor that you're going into. And I did that. So I was really prepared for that. And so I had the opportunity when I went out to the Bay Area to uh, – on the off season, start doing radio work. And I worked for KMBR radio out there. And I worked with a guy named Frank Dill at a morning show, drive show. And in the off season, uh, I was, I was, I was his sports guy doing the sports report on the morning show and started to get myself indoctrinated into the broadcasting field and just worked at that from there. And I've done stuff over the years for you know, over 50 some odd years. So disappointed that I'm like, we have been given the opportunity to get back into it again, because I, I, I really don't like what I listen to a lot of times and what I hear from a lot of these guys that are broadcasting, and I won't mention any names. And the difference is, is that, again, I was a pioneer there, too, because I was one of the first athletes who was reasonably intelligent, who had the guts to be honest and tell the truth about what was happening. And the honest, I always remember Jack Nicholson in the movie, uh, with a few good bad. You can't handle the truth <laughs> in that trial scene. And people can't handle the truth. And so I, I wasn't a shill. And I was being honest to be informative, not to be critical. And I got crucified over that, too, because the people were saying, oh, my God, he's too negative and stuff. I you know, hey, wait a second. You're asking me to do the job. There's good and bad that happens in the course of a basketball game. I'm going to tell you about both of them. I'm not going to just be there to sugarcoat it and only say the good things. I'm going to tell you about the bad things. But when I tell you about the bad things, I was telling you why it was a bad pass. Not to say, what a terrible pass that was. I mean, no kidding. I mean, seriously, everybody could see it was a bad pass. And you hear guys saying, oh, it's a bad play. Well, why was it a bad play? What should you have done to make it a good play? Be informative. Right. See, there's a fine line you have to walk in broadcasting. You can't be so basic that you insult the intelligence of people who really know the game. But you can't be so technical that you lose all of the other people who have no idea what you're talking about. 
because it's way above their head. And so you have to walk that fine line, but you still, I think, have to be honest about it. So I was. I wound up losing my job, and I haven't really had an opportunity to get back into it. And, you know, things have changed. I mean, now, you know, Charles Barkley and some of these guys get all these rave reviews because they're being honest. But a lot of times and they're being honest to just and being negative without really being informative. Sure. So it's, it's, a, it's an interesting conundrum that exists there. But, yeah, I would love to be able to get back into doing that. I'm happy that a couple of my boys, who I think are doing terrific jobs, but Frank and John are doing a great job with it. And uh, so, yeah, that's how it is. Finally, Rick, what, what does it mean for you to be working with the Hall of Fame at this stage in your incredible life? Well, you know, here's the thing. Is that nobody, I don't think anybody grows up saying, yeah, I'm going to become a Hall of Fame player. I was just saying, I just want to become a professional athlete. I really wanted to be a baseball player because I was a better baseball player in high school than I was basketball, much better. And it, it worked out very nicely. And then all of a sudden, when, it, when the reality of it sets in, you realize that it's an enormous uh, accomplishment and honor to be picked as one of the greatest to ever perform you know, on a basketball court, uh, it's a great honor, and it means a great deal to me. Um, you know, certainly you play on a team sport to win championships. I was lucky enough to do that. And then the ultimate honor, as far as individually-wise, is that have you performed at a level that enables you to be recognized by your peers as one of the greatest to have done what it is that you did for your profession. And so I'm very fortunate to have done that. I think the Hall of Fame does a lot of great things. John DeLiva and all of the people who work under him have been fantastic. Um, the Hall of Fame had some real issues early on, and like anything else in life, you, you always strive to improve and get better, and they certainly have done that. Uh, and my hat goes off and my compliments go off to John and all of the staff for the fabulous job that they've done with the Hall of Fame and, and turning it into you know, one of the best shrines for professional sports. Uh, just a, an amazing job they've done there. Well, he is one of the sport's all-time great personalities, talents, and brains. He is a 1987 Naismith Memorial Basketball Hall of Fame enshrinee, an NBA champion with the 1975 Golden State Warriors, and the only man to lead the NCAA, NBA, and ABA in scoring. He is Rick Barry. Rick, thanks again for this time. This has been a lot of fun. My pleasure, Kyle. Thank you.